How is it possible that it's already August? We hope you are enjoying your summer. Back by popular demand is our AirPods Pro giveaway. Members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts, which you get by becoming a member. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of August, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code BONUSCONTENT, one word, at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code bonus content. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C., and this the last week of summer. My heart is breaking, Um, you know, um, but... Uh, we've got our uh, usual great gang here and lots to talk about. Uh, so uh, let me take this opportunity to welcome Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. And Corey Shockey, who runs all the you know stuff about global danger at the American Enterprise Institute. How are you doing, Corey? I am exceedingly well. Thank you, David. And David Sanger, who is sequestered away in Vermont, finishing uh, his magnum opus. Uh, how are you doing, David? I'm fine, but I'm afraid I'm not in Vermont. I'm like tucked away in Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. So isn't that sad? You know, especially as I look at Corey spread out across California here, uh, you know, enjoying. It's true. I am west of the 100th meridian. Yeah, Corey. Corey usually gets this right. She's 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 smarter than us in so many things. So let me um, uh, say that I, you know I thought it's the end of the summer. We're about to sort of enter the uh, back to school season. We're also about to enter an American political campaign season, unlike any other. Um, and I just thought let's take a step back. Um, coming out of our last conversation with Rosa and Corey. Um, you know, at the very tail end of the conversation, we started to talk about how how the U.S. is doing relative to what our expectations were when the whole BRICS thing got cooked up. Um, and, you know, I started thinking about it, and I was thinking, well, you know, uh, not only are we doing better than we thought we would be doing 30 years ago, but I think in a lot of ways we're doing better than we thought we might be doing three years ago. I mean, three years ago, we were in the middle of COVID. We had a president who was betraying the country. We had an insurrection. We had economic crises. We were not great standing around the world. Um, And in all of those things, I think we're doing much better. It's not to say we're out of the woods, but I think we're doing much better. And I thought, let's, uh, you know, since all of you have perspectives on the world, 
stop and say, how are we doing in foreign policy? You know, we've got our Commerce Secretary in China right now, heard a statement from Corey's favorite cabinet member, our USTR, talking about India, um, which she was, I, I, I mean, there's, there's a disease going on in Washington, which is kind of like going too far with everything. And she's like, we agree with India on everything. Everything's great with India. And I was like, really? But, you know, we've got the Ukraine thing going on. There's some bubbling in the background of something with Israel and Saudi Arabia, although I don't understand why. Um, there's all sorts of stuff going on, and I just thought this would be a good time to take the temperature and get your perspectives on how we're doing on U.S. foreign policy three years into this administration. Okay, Rosa, you give grades for a living. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm really glad that you restricted your question to how we're doing on U.S. foreign policy, because, because that allows me to do something that I, I never do. And in fact, I, I came to this podcast thinking, there's no way I'm doing it today, which is which is to be kind of positive. Um, I thought you were going to just say, "Isn't the U.S. doing great?" And I was going to say, "No, we're not, David." Ah, um, I fooled um, I fooled you. But if you if you limit to foreign policy, I actually think we're doing okay. I really do. And and David had a great column in the Daily Beast in which you perhaps erred a little bit excessively on the optimism side. Well, let's. Uh, but you weren't. Well, I mean, the first three policy. paragraphs said the world could come to an end. Our yeah, democracy yeah, could yeah, totally, true. you know, I mean, it was not crazy, but go on. Um, but yeah, I'm, I mean, I think I, I am quite worried. I, I think it depends exactly what how, we, how you frame the question. If the, if the question is, should we feel confident that we're out of the woods and everything is fine? The answer to that is clearly no. If the question is, how has the Biden administration been doing? How has the U.S. been doing in terms of foreign policy in the last three years compared to baseline starting point uh, January 6, 2021? Um, things are much better than they could be. A lot of that, I do give a lot of credit to the administration, which is which has, under extremely challenging circumstances, you know, had a pretty steady hand at the wheel on on everything. Um, so, so yeah, overall, I'm going to say, I'm actually going to give them an A minus. I'm going to give the U S an A minus on foreign policy. Wow. And only giving an A minus because, you know, a would be implying everything's great. Um, we don't want to do that. Well, I kind of, I kind of, I kind of like this is role reversal. Finally, six, eight years into us doing this, because this is going to be upbeat, optimistic Rosa. And I'm pretty sure Corey and David are going to come out someplace else, but (laughs) let's see if I'm right, Corey. So I agree that American foreign policy is in a lot better shape than it was three years ago. Um, and But I only give about half as much credit to the Biden administration as Rosa does, because we have been so, so fortunate in the behavior of our adversaries, right? So Bismarck famously said that God must have a special providence for drunks, babies, and the United States of America. And that feels true historically, and it feels true in the moment, because the Trump administration uh, ought to have collapsed America's alliance relationships, both in Europe and in Asia, with their uh, mercantilist, zero-sum 
nationalist attitudes, which were so contrary to the prior 75 years or so of enlightened American foreign policy that that made decisions that were not simply good for us, but but also incentivized cooperation and buy-in from other countries. But the behavior of China has actually reinforced America's alliances in Asia, and not just the alliances of Asian countries with the United States, but has spurred activism and strategic creativity from Japan, Australia, even South Korea, um, in greater willingness to cooperate beyond what they had been willing to do with, say, Japan um, in prior decades. And Russia's uh, terrible war criminal behavior in Europe has actually deepened America's alliance relationships there as well. So both of America's adversaries are proving themselves enemies, not just of the United States, but of an international order that is preferentially beneficial to small and middle-sized powers. Um, The Biden administration has done a good job with the with the important powers of the international order. You know, I, I love that they were able to orchestrate the trilat with South Korea and Japan. Like David, I'm extremely nervous about what they're trying to cook up between Saudi Arabia, Israel, and in fact, that their motivation for it seems to be China. But uh, but they have done a pretty good job. Where they have colossally failed uh, is in continuation of the mercantilist policies of the Trump administration and aversion to international trade, a reliance on tariffs in ways that make it harder for the countries that want to help us sustain the existing order to do so wholeheartedly. It's encouraging hedging among smaller and middle-sized powers that are disadvantageous to us. So what you're saying is if you grade on a curve versus the other students in the class, we're doing, you know, roughly as Rosa said, but it's only because Russia and China and, you know, the other students in the class haven't been paying attention and have been screwing up. Well, not only because of that, but, but I am in this first instance of the last eight years slightly more pessimistic than Rosa that our own government deserves the credit on this count. Wow. Wow. Well, David. The world turned upside down. The world turned upside down as they played at the end of the Battle of Yorktown. Right, Corey? Exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, So, David, this is your opportunity and your usual Solomonic role to split the baby. (laughs) Uh, well, you know, the difficulty in splitting the baby here is that I'm in nearly complete agreement with one or two exceptions with Corey. Okay. So I saw, I, I saw this coming. You saw this coming. Saw this it's coming. just yeah. ganging up on you, David. Um, I haven't said anything. I, I, I'm, you know, Rose well, no, is the all, optimist. Rose is the cherry optimist. David. We've read what? your. We've read your piece of optimism in the Daily Beast, and as well. you know, it is against 
Corey's nature and my own to be optimistic at any given moment. And that is because, as you know, David, I'm a Red Sox fan. And when you're a Red Sox fan, you learn what happens if you are an optimist. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you should try being a Yankees fan. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, um, so first, let's take the really good news. Most of the good news, believe it or not, is on the domestic economic front. A year ago, I don't think any of us would have bet that there was much of a chance of a soft landing, especially if you knew that mortgage rates were going to be at like 7%. So here we are. Uh, and in fact, it looks like Biden may get away with an economy that is still growing despite all of the predictions that we were headed into recession post-COVID. Which, Second, by the way, means just Larry Summers. But keep going. Okay. Uh, no, there were more than that. And the markets were more than that. I mean, American Enterprise Institute economists fall on that side of the line, David. Notably, yeah, Michael right. Strain. All right. All the neo neoliberals. Right. Anyway, go so, on. So that worked out better than I expected it would be. Secondly, just to go in the comparative grading here, if you were dealing with an economy to deal with this world for the next year or two, and you had the choice of taking what Joe Biden has in hand, what Vladimir Putin has in hand under sanctions that are actually, looks like, beginning to do some significant damage, or even what Xi Jinping has in hand, I think you take the American one hands down, right? Because, uh, you know, China is running, I don't think permanently, but I think they have finally run into uh, the inevitable gravitational pull. And Putin doesn't have much of a future out here if, because he was unable to diversify his economy before he invaded Ukraine. And the result was that it became relatively easy to sanction the oil stuff. Obviously, there are cheaters on this, and he's selling to the Chinese and all that. He's not getting the kind of revenue he needs. Um, so that... That I think all racks up on the the side of the optimism you had in your in your piece, David. Um, on the flip side of this, um, countries that are not doing well, that are major power um, competitors, tend to get angry and tend to do sometimes irrational things. And frankly, I think that the downside risk for us in the next couple of years is how to deal with an economically weakened China and a generally weakened Russia. And, you know, on Russia, we've, you know, spent a year and a half discussing the nuclear risks. I don't think those are over. Um, on China, uh, I think that you're going to see that as Xi gets under pressure, he's going to have to feel like he's going to have to flame, inflame the nationalist side of things. So I think you're going to see us in continued um, uh, trouble with them. Um, the one part where I disagree with Corey is that, well, I think the tariffs that Biden has left on from the Trump era are problematic. I agree with that. I actually think that the export controls that he has done, particularly in semiconductors and some of the other high technology areas, is something that Trump didn't do. Obama didn't do, and we're long, long overdue. Because if you don't do that, you were well on your way to um, watching the United States be dependent on supply chains rolling right out of, of China. 
Um, whether that will make things worse or better on uh, defending Taiwan, whether it will put us and the Chinese into a downward spiral, those are all significant risks for the next year or two. Um, I think we've got a little more time on Taiwan than we all thought we did, uh, maybe even a year ago. But uh, I think that while we're doing much better, I think our risk level has actually increased at this point. Oh, David, you've made me feel so much better. Well, you, yeah, more at home, perhaps, with this. I feel very uneasy when there's optimism in the air. I always like to hear a little bit of negativity. <laughs> well, yeah, well, let me, let me suggest to you, Rosa, that David's wrong about most of these things. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and, and I'll start with the fact that, that, you know, the United States is in a much stronger position than it's been in in a long time with NATO, with an expanded NATO, uh, with a bipartisan group, you know, supporting that. And Russia is in a much weaker position than it's been in in a long time since it's lost half of its battlefield capability of its military for a very low investment on the part of the West. The likelihood that Russia is actually going to um, uh, threaten the West in any realistic, serious way, I think, has gone down. I also would argue that the likelihood that China uh, is going to do something irrational is also um, not very high because they don't do irrational things. They are weakened. And There's always the time. Give well, them it's a chance. true, but, but, it, but it tends not to be what they do. They've got economic problems, very serious economic problems. That, of course, is often a time when when uh, authoritarian regimes think a nice, distracting foreign crisis would be just the thing. Well, yeah, you, it, it is in Russia, which hasn't worked. But but what I would argue in China is that the deal that the Chinese Communist Party has with the people of China is they'll you know they're they're allowed to stay in charge and 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 continue their various forms of oppression provided people have growth and if they don't have growth they're out and so their focus has got to be on um you know sort of setting things right economically um but you know that's that's just one more perspective rosa um do you have an area where you're particularly critical of U.S. foreign policy right now? No, I mean, I, I actually, I, I, I can, I can be critical, but I also don't know that anyone could have done better, right? I mean, it is absolutely possible to criticize the handling of Ukraine and sort of, well, we can't quite make up our minds. There's a little of this, a little of that. Well, maybe soon, maybe not. We're, you know, we're a little slow. We're a little indecisive. We're a little hesitant. Um, I could criticize that, but I also am not sure I could have done better. I, you know, I, I, I understand the reasons that decision making on this has been so so difficult. Um, so I, no, I, I actually, for once, and I, I, you know, as you know, I was fairly critical of the Biden, of the Obama administration's foreign policy in many ways, um, and and I was critical of uh, uh, some early Biden administration foreign policy decisions, such as the way the Afghanistan withdrawal was handled. But right now, I, I don't think they're making any major mistakes. I think they're doing about as well as it would be possible to do. I don't, I can't, I don't know how they could be doing better realistically right now. Well, Corey may uh, Corey have an does. idea. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, let's call on the student in California. Yes, Corey. What is um so uh the horse I always beat dead, which is trade policy is actually good for the United States and it is good for others. And they fundamentally misunderstand that. Um, and, and it is dramatically impeding their ability to cement the relationships that we need, particularly in Asia. Um, but, but I also think they, they fundamentally don't understand the role military force should play in strengthening American diplomacy. And the example I would use is the Middle East, right? The last three American administrations have clearly signaled a disinterest in continuing military commitments in the Middle East. Um, and yet the Biden administration is mooting a big diplomatic uh, initiative that would reward the Netanyahu government at the nadir of its liberality um, that would give an Article 5 guarantee to Saudi Arabia, something that I'm skeptical you could marshal 66 senators in support of. But even if that were true, um, why is the Biden administration committing? Why are they considering a major diplomatic move that would dramatically increase American military obligations in the Middle East when nothing has been so central to Biden administration um, national security policy than a reflexive desire to shed American military commitments in the Middle East and to countries like Afghanistan or Saudi Arabia. Um, the other thing, and this may actually be the most important of them, is the unwillingness of the president to actually explain to the American people why we're doing what we're doing. And this is most importantly damaging with regard to public support for our aid to Ukraine. Because the president won't explain why he won't commit troops to Ukraine, but says he will to the defense of Taiwan, why $50 billion of American assistance matters there when we won't give it in other places. Um, he is not bringing the American public along with him. And that's perhaps the most important thing a president does in foreign policy. So I think on all three of those things, they should up their game. Go on, David. Either agree with her or defend the Biden administration. I will get, leave you either option. <laughs> um, I can uh, do a little bit of both. Um, so, yeah, so I, I'm less concerned about their trade policy than Corey is. And as I indicated before, I'm more of an enthusiast for actually thinking hard about our export controls and even the investment controls on China that um, they were announced in the executive order. Um, I thought it was interesting when Gina Raimondo was in China this week that the phrase that stuck in everybody's ear was her telling the Chinese premier that their country was uninvestable 
in the minds of many American um, companies. And um, I thought that probably could do more to move China than almost anything else because they're going to need capital. So can, uh, can I just chi- chime in mm-hmm. very briefly here? Because I, I, I agree with it. I thought she did a good trip. But there's another dimension of trade policy, which we shouldn't lose sight of here. I'm saying this is the former trade policy guy here. And that is that there has been a very significant investment in U.S. Um, a productive capacity, competitiveness, uh, chips manufacturing, chips and science act, infrastructure, and so forth. And that's that's an important component of trade. It's policy. a very important component. And my only critique of critique of that, David, is that it hasn't gone anywhere far enough. You know, we put fifty two billion dollars into semiconductors, which is creating investment. If you believe the numbers you're hearing, upwards of two hundred billion. Even that will not get us to that moment of semiconductor independence uh, that we um, heard uh, one of the Republican presidential candidates bandy about. It's not going to happen unless we go in in a much bigger way. Um, so on the critique side, uh, I agree. You're, with you're not suggesting you support that Republican presidential. No, no. I was suggesting that uh, when he thought that we could have semiconductor independence by what did he say 2028 that's crazy i mean well, we're not going to have first, semiconductor not. independence by that time probably not by 38 or 48 but we can get we can get better um so on the question of the president not coming out to explain foreign policy uh and and american goals uh well enough Corey is exactly right you know, one of the things we learned from the George W. Bush administration, which Corey was in, was that whether you thought that his Iraq policy was wildly mistaken or whether you thought it was good, he was out three times a week explaining what it was you thought he was doing. And we rarely hear from Biden on any of these issues. He says you know, our support for Ukraine is important and we've got to get it on a, on a long-term basis. He's exactly right, but he needs to explain every other day why it's important. And the very fact that you have seen in the Republican debates a split in the, in the Republican Party where you've seen a whole faction come up and say, we don't need to be spending our money there, tells you that they think there is a market for making a case against Ukraine. I think the president's got to pay attention to that. Um, Similarly, on China, he has not done a very good job of explaining our overall overarching goals. Jake Sullivan has. Tony Blinken has. um, But, you know, people don't pay attention to this unless it's coming directly from the president. He's just not being a great communicator about his objectives, even if you think, as Rosa does, as Corey does in some cases, as you clearly do, um, that he, that he's fundamentally doing a, a pretty good job of it and, you know, could campaign on it. And I think this is based on a calculus inside the White House that Americans don't want to hear about foreign policy and that they won't vote for him on the basis of foreign policy. And that may well be, you know, why they have him not talking about it. So for deep state nerds who aren't watching the video. Rosa's just demonstrating the validity of the White House's judgment because she yawned massively 
twice. I was going to say, I was, I was going to say that there is a lot of, unfor- unfortunately, a lot of studies do suggest that except in relatively rare circumstances, foreign policy doesn't move the needle. Uh, although, of course, we've all been struggling against it. But, but I also, I, I, I just am not sure he has the ability to move the needle on much of anything. I, I, I don't, I, I think that the, there are so many other voices out there that even though he's the president, that bully pulpit is much shrunken from what it used to be. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure that it would make much difference one way or the other on, on not only on foreign policy, but on almost any issue if Biden was out there three times a week, I, I, which doesn't take away from your point, David, which is that he should try. He should still be trying. Um, I, but I'm, I'm a little pessimistic about his ability to, to get through to every, anybody in the country other than the people who already are knowledgeable and supportive. Now, Corey, there's an alternative right. explanation about why it was that uh, that Rosa was yawning, and that alternative yeah. explanation is that I was talking. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> it's not, not, it's not lost on the rest of us. Uh, let, let's no. uh, just take this opportunity, as we always do at this point, to say thanks to everybody f- who is listening in the general public, and that you're uh, uh, much uh, loved by us, but. Uh, Uh, You're going to miss out on the exciting remaining third of this podcast because you're not a member. And you should be a member, and it's $5 a month, and you go to the DSRnetwork.com and become a member. And I would say, by the way, you know, contrary to all this pessimism here about foreign policy, here we have the nerdiest little media company in the world. And um, this is our biggest month ever in terms of downloads. Uh, We'll probably get to about 800,000 downloads. Uh, compare that to our first month six years ago when we had 40,000. That's pretty good. Um, at 800,000 downloads. And we, we're about to announce a couple things that have us fairly confident that we'll hit a million by the end of the year, downloads per month. So people do care about foreign policy. And we're one of the few places that really goes into it in depth. And so if you want to support that, go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership pay five bucks a month, get to hear the rest of all of the content that we've got and have coming um, and feel good about yourself because we all should care about this stuff. Uh, uh, For those of you who are members, though, uh, you'll get to keep listening. So stand by.